thank you so much. Appreciate the good music again tonight. Thank you, choir, for being here early and uh, preparing that for us. And that was a blessing. And as Pastor said, what a joy to be together in the Lord's house on this Monday night. Take your Bible. Let's go to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you will. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2. I'd like to read starting in verse 19 and read down to verse 21. Second Timothy chapter 2 and beginning with verse 19. The Bible says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and that everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Have you ever sat down in a restaurant and as you were getting ready to eat, you noticed that perhaps the utensils that you were about to use were not completely clean. Well, what did you do? You asked, no doubt, your waiter or waitress to please replace this fork. I was in a uh, restaurant, I don't remember where, what the name of the place was, but it was like a buffet. And uh, you paid your money and you went to a little cart and they had, you know, hundreds of plates there and your silverware and all that kind of thing. And as I got ready to go up there, I noticed a lot of people were taking a plate, kind of looking at it, and then they would set it aside. And they'd take another one, look at it, set it aside. And they'd usually look at about four of them and they'd finally find one. They'd go and I thought, wow. By the time I got up there, there were almost as many plates being set aside as there were still available to use. The reason was that the dishwasher, whether mechanical or unmechanical, was not doing a very good job. When something is not clean, it's not very usable. And I want to say tonight that revival is not going to come with God using dirty utensils. God needs a clean vessel. Now in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13, Jesus declares that ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, it is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. Interesting verse. God calls us salt. He uses the metaphor of salt. Now salt, if you remember from chemistry class, is made up of two things, sodium and chloride. And that's all salt is sodium chloride. They tell us, science does, that you can do anything you want to to salt and its composition remains the same, sodium chloride. In other words, you can take salt and freeze it, but it's still sodium chloride. You can take salt and liquefy it, boil it, liquefy it, it's still sodium chloride. You can take salt and crush it, still sodium chloride. 
Now, I find that interesting because Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And what that tells me is once you're saved, you can't lose your salvation. The devil can turn up the heat in our life. He can sometimes try to crush us with adversity, but we're still saved. And I'm glad for that. But Jesus said, if the salt have lost its savor, it's thenceforth good for nothing. So how does salt lose its savor? Have you ever tasted some salt that wasn't salty? You ever taken a salt shaker and maybe went to pour some on your food and it kind of rattled around in the salt shaker, it was kind of crystallized in there, and maybe you took the lid off and, and uh, you kind of, ooh, it's kind of bland. What happened? The salt had lost its savor. Now, it's still sodium chloride, that's all it is, ever was and ever will be. But it's lost its savor. So how does salt lose its savor? Well, again, chemistry class helps. Chemistry tells us that salt loses its savor only by contamination. When something else gets into the mixture, suddenly the salt loses its saltiness. And when that happens in our life, when contamination comes into our life, the things of the world, the things of our flesh, the sin that so easily besets us, when that gets into our life, God says, you're good for nothing. And that's a pretty powerful statement. I mean, suppose I said to, to Kyle, Kyle, you're good for nothing. You good for nothing, idiot. What are you doing? Stop being good for nothing. Right? I mean, that would be pretty harsh, wouldn't it? I mean, he might start crying. Uh, he might slug me. I mean, he might get upset. To call somebody good for nothing, that's pretty low. But that's what Jesus calls us if we allow contamination in our life. God says, you're good for nothing. So if revival's going to come, if revival is going to take place, we've got to keep our salt salty. We've got to be careful not to become contaminated with the things of this world. We want to be a vessel that God would choose to bring revival to. Now, question is, are we clean or are we contaminated? Let's look at three aspects to consider here from 2 Timothy chapter 2 that will help us, I believe, to be a vessel unto honor. First of all, we see an unmovable foundation. In verse 19, he says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Now, what foundation is God speaking of? When God talks about a foundation in our life, what does he speak of? Is he speaking of our education? Is he speaking of our background? Is he speaking of our upbringing? What is our foundation? In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, God said, Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious corner stone, a sure foundation. 
Again, of whom does the prophet speak? When he talks about this tried stone, this precious cornerstone, this sure foundation. Well, Paul answers that in Ephesians chapter 2. And verse 20 says, We're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Christ is our foundation. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, first of all, do you have Christ tonight? Do you have him as your Savior? People say, well, how can I know that? That's kind of presumptuous to think that I, I'm going to heaven, that I, I, my sins have been forgiven, that I have eternal life. I mean, that sounds arrogant. That sounds proud. How Can you really know that? Well, the Bible says we can. And on what basis can we know that we're saved? Well, first of all, based on the surety of Scripture. God's Word is at stake with respect to salvation. Because God makes it very clear that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So God either meant that or God lied. So the surety of his word is at stake here. The surety of scripture. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Isaiah 43 and 11 says, I even I am the Lord and beside me there is no Savior. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none of the name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So God assures of salva us of salvation of this foundation through, first of all, the surety of his word, but also through the seal of his spirit. In verse 19 in 2 Timothy 2, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, that the Lord knoweth them that are his. The seal of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8 and verse 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness that with our spirit that we are the children of God. Sometimes I ask people, how do you know you're saved? And you get a variety of responses to that. Well, I prayed a prayer. Um, I wrote the date in the front of my Bible. Um, I went forward at a service. I signed a decision card. Well, all those things are not wrong, and all those things can be very good. But the, assurances of our, the assurance of our salvation must come from within. It must come from the Holy Spirit of God. Because if any man have not the Spirit of God, he's none of his. So tonight, does the Holy Spirit call you a Christian? You know, a relationship requires two people. I'm so glad my wife got to fly in today and be in the service tonight. It's always nice when she can join me and, and be with me. And I'm glad. I hope you get to meet her after the service. Now, some of you are looking around saying, oh, his wife's here. Wow, I hope I get. My wife's not here. There's not a woman in here that would claim me as her husband. Now, I could pull your leg and I could convince you that my wife is sitting in this auditorium, but there's no lady in here that would say, that's my husband. Now, you know what a lot of people say? I'm a Christian. Well, what does God say? Does God call you a Christian? 
Because the Bible says, many shall come unto me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. So it's important that our assurance of salvation comes from the seal of the Spirit. Hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Hereby we know that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Now you say, well, Brother Gatch, what if I have doubts? What if I'm just not sure? Well, can I tell you something? I believe that everybody's going to have some doubts about their salvation. And here's why. If you are not saved, you're going to try to assure yourself that you are. In other words, if you're not sure that you're saved, every time you hear a message about hell or the rapture or something like that, you say, well, I, yeah, I, I, but I prayed a prayer. I, I've been in church all my life. I, I'm a pretty good person. In other words, you're trying to assure yourself with things. But the Holy Spirit is saying, no, you're not. No, you're not. And so the Holy Spirit is trying to cause the unsaved person to doubt what he's trusting. Now, on the other side of that coin, if you are saved, guess who's trying to make you doubt? The devil. Remember, he's an accuser of the brethren. He doesn't go around accusing people that aren't saved. He has no reason to. He's already got them. So he accuses the saved. Well, what would he accuse us of? Not being saved. Because if he can make you believe you're not saved, you're not going to serve him. So on the other hand of this thing, the devil's trying to get you to doubt. So if you aren't saved, the Holy Spirit wants you to doubt that you are. If you are saved, the devil wants you to doubt that you are. So everybody's going to have doubts. He said, well, I guess you're not helping me. <laughs> well, let's think about this. Where do doubts come from? When, when the Holy Spirit tries to bring doubts in our life so that we'll get saved. He does those in our heart. He does those on the inside. In other words, the Holy Spirit doesn't convict you by saying, well, you're not a Christian, you never go to church. Well, you're not a Christian, you, you, you don't have thoughts about me. No, the Holy Spirit of God doesn't deal from the outside in, he deals from the inside out. In other words, you might be saying to yourself, why, well, but I'm a good person. I, I'm religious. I, I'm a kind guy. I'm moral. I, my ethical dealings at work are fine. And, and you're trying to justify the fact you think you're saved. And the Holy Spirit inside is saying, no, you're not. Now, the devil's assurance always comes from the outside. The person who, who um, is saved and the devil's trying to get him to doubt. He's saying, oh, you're not saved. I mean, look what you thought about this morning. Look, look how you didn't read your Bible today. He's bringing all these doubts from the outside. He's bringing his assurance from the outside. The Holy Spirit doesn't deal with the outside stuff. He deals with the inside. 
He's bringing that doubt in the inside. And the same way with assurance. The Holy Spirit doesn't give you assurance that you're saved because of dates in the front of your Bible. He doesn't give you assurance because you go to church. He gives you assurance by His Holy Spirit bearing witness with your spirit. You're a child of God. It's a peace that passes all understanding. Sometimes you can't even explain it. You just know. I know that I know that I know. People say, well, that's a dumb answer. No, it's not. Because you can't explain a peace that has no understanding. Do you have that assurance? You need it. Because before we can be a vessel that's used by God, we must have this foundation. It's an unmovable foundation. But notice the second aspect. He warns us of an unwise fellowship. Now read on in verse 19. He says, And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Verse 20, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor, and some to dishonor. Now, let's, let's take our Bibles, hold your place here if you like. Let's go back to Psalm chapter 1. Because I think this passage is very simple and very succinct when it comes to this unwise fellowship that God speaks of here. We'll come back to 2 Timothy in a moment. But in Psalm 1, let's, let's look at this carefully and see, first of all, if, if we're going to be careful about this unwise fellowship, we've got to verify counsel. In verse 1, he says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. We've got to verify counsel. God is saying, be careful about your fellowship. Be careful about who you hang around. Birds of a feather flock together. He who lies down with dogs rises with fleas. Okay? In other words, you're going to become, in large part, like the people you hang around. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. So he's saying, if you're going to be somebody that I can use, you've got to be careful about an unwise fellowship, and it starts by verifying your counsel. Now, there's a lot of counsel out there today for us to draw from. Uh, there are a gazillion books, it seems, on every possible subject. I'm amazed when I go into Barnes & Noble or someplace like that, at the, the subjects upon which people write. I was in a college bookstore, a secular college bookstore one day. I was looking for something specific, and I, I heard they had some books on the topic, and I went in there, and I was just kind of perusing, and there was a book, How to Start a War. Now, actually, now, now, what subject, what course here at the college would require a book like that? Oh, she said, uh, all our political science majors have to have to have that book, How to Start a War. I was going, great, good. <laughs> Just there's a book about everything. And, and really, when it comes to the Christian life, there are many Christian authors. There are many good things out there. There are some things we have to be careful about. Uh, there's the Internet today, and you can go on the Internet, and you can Google a subject, and I mean everybody's an expert on that particular subject. And it doesn't have to be verified or not. It doesn't have to be factual or not. If it's on the internet, it's got to be true. 
Now, what do we do with all this? We talk to our friends. They give us counsel. We talk to maybe uh, people at church. They give us some counsel. We talk to people at work. They give us some counsel. We, we, we read a book. We look at a blog. We, we, we have all this information coming our way. What do we do with that? Well, God says we've got to verify that counsel with the Word of God. Remember that tape measure last night? You've got to go back to the standard, to the law, and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. In other words, if we're getting the answer to our spiritual question from any place other than the Bible, we got the wrong answer. We've got to go back to the law and to the testimony to find the truth. Why? Because the wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken low. They have rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. You know, we don't need to read as much of what this world offers as we might think. Most of you would uh, know the name John, John Bunyan. John Bunyan was in prison for preaching the gospel, for not taking a license to preach, and for 13 years spent uh, those years in the Bedford jail. All he had to do was take the license and he could get out. But to honor his convictions, he stayed in that jail for 13 years. And while he was in there, he wrote something that most of us have heard of called Pilgrim's Progress. Considered by even uh, unsaved literary experts to be perhaps the greatest classic piece of literature ever written outside the Bible. It has been second in uh, sales to the Bible for numbers of years running. Pilgrim's Progress, and really Bunyan's trilogy of works are considered classic English literature. Amazing piece of work. Do you know that John Bunyan stated at the end of his life, I have read no other book in my entire life other than the Bible. Now when you study the intricacies of Pilgrim's Progress and the, the tremendous literary device of allegory, to think that that man never spent any time reading anything other than the Bible is an amazing thing. But when you read Pilgrim's Progress, though it doesn't quote a lot of scripture, it sure refers to a lot of it, doesn't it? Amazing. And we think, boy, I need this advice from this guy, and I better get counsel from him, and I better check the internet, and I better see what Dr. So-and-so is saying. Listen, go to the Word of God. I'm not saying that there's not some good counsel. And, and young people, you ought to ask your parents. Uh, church members, you ought to ask your pastor. I mean, there's good counsel. But make sure, like the people of Berea, that you search the scriptures where these things are so. Because we do err, not knowing the scriptures. So we must verify counsel. Secondly, we must vet companions. In the second part of verse 1, he says nor standeth in the way of sinners. We must vet our companions. In Proverbs 4 and verse 14, enter not into the path of the wicked and go not in the way of evil men. In Proverbs 24 and verse 1, the Bible says, be not thou envious against evil men, neither desire to be with them. You know, if you're not careful, the devil starts convincing you that you're missing something as a Christian. We start thinking that the world's having all the fun and we're stuck in church. God says, don't be envious of the wicked. You're not missing anything. 
Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What conquereth Christ with Belial? What part is he that believeth with an infidel? Awake to righteousness and sin not. Why? Because evil communications corrupt good manners. If you get around the wrong friends, you're going to be taken in the wrong direction. I think one of the saddest passages of Scripture in all the Bible is in 2 Samuel 13. There's a young man in that passage by the name of Amnon. Amnon was David's son. And Amnon, the Bible says, lusted after his half-sister Tamar. In other words, Amnon had a wicked heart. He allowed his lust to consume him. And he wanted to do something immoral with Tamar. But verse 2 says, he thought it hard to do anything to her, for she was a virgin. In other words, he thought, boy, I'd like, but there's no sense even trying. I mean, she's godly. In fact, later in the chapter, it says she wore a garment of diverse colors, for with such garments were the king's daughters who were virgins apparelled. So she was not ashamed of her purity. She wore a garment that signified it. So here was this girl, a godly girl, and Amnon wanted to, he wanted to fulfill his lust with her. And the Bible uses the word love there, but, but Amnon did not love her. He lusted after her. You say, well, how can you make that statement? Because later after he raped her, the Bible says the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he loved her. Well, my Bible says love never fails. So when love turns to hate, it was never love. It was egoistical, eros kind of love. Three words for the word love in the Greek. Eros, philea, and agape. Eros was the, the erotic love that we see today so often uh, that, that is, is, is portrayed as love, but it's nothing more than lust. Okay? Philea love is that friendly love. Philadelphia comes from that word, the city of brotherly love. They probably need to rename the city, but, but anyway, uh, the, the, the brotherly love. You send me a birthday card, I'll send you one. You stop sending me one, I'm stopping sending you one. You know, it's kind of that way. And there's a lot of that kind of love, and that's, that's not necessarily bad love, it's just a friendship love. But the agape love that Jesus Christ introduced was a love that was unconditional, that would love even when they weren't loved back. One of the most amazing things to me about Christ was he died for people that will never be saved. He paid the price for people's sin that will never ask him to forgive him. That's an agape love. As Paul said, I'll very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. So Amnon, he thought, I can't do anything this girl. She's a virgin. But verse 3, but Amnon had a friend. What a statement. As Job said, how forcible are right words. Amnon had a friend. And in reality, he didn't have a friend, he had an enemy. His name was Jonadab. Jonadab, if you read the passage carefully, was actually his cousin. 
And Jonadab contrived a plan whereby Amnon could rape his sister. And as a result, Amnon follows that plan, fulfills his lust upon his half-sister. As a result of that, Tamar is shamed. Amnon is killed by his brother Absalom. And the tragedy of David's house begins. All because somebody had a wrong friend. That story never happens without that wrong friend. And how many times are we going to have to look back in our life saying, you know, that would have never happened if I'd been in the right crowd. If I'd just been with the right people. If I'd been in church that night. If I'd been reading my Bible instead of on the internet that night. If I I had just stayed in the right company of people, that never would have happened. So we must verify counsel. We must vet companions. And then we've got to avoid criticism. In verse 1 of Psalm 1, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Now, someone critiquing our life to help us, that can be very profitable. We need that. We need iron to sharpen iron. When somebody comes up to us and says, hey, I need to talk to you. And maybe they point out something in our life that needs correction. It needs, it needs uh, uh, some work. And our pastor might do that, or a brother in Christ might do that. And, and, and we got to be careful. We don't take offense at that. They're, if they come with the right spirit and with the right attitude and motive, with a humble heart, in love toward us, we ought to accept that. And, 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 and look at it as if God uh, brought them into our life for that purpose. But be careful of the critic. Be careful of that scorner. Be careful of that one that is constantly critiquing and criticizing the work of God. Scorners in the Bible are dangerous people. In fact, the Bible says a scorner can bring a city into shame. One scorner. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 18, one sinner destroyeth much good. In Proverbs 24 and verse 9, a scorner is an abomination unto men. Paul reminds us to mark those which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine that you've learned and avoid them. Watch out for those people that are always undermining the Word of God, always criticizing the work of God, always have something to say about the preaching or about the, you know, the, 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 the church and what they're trying to do for God and always critical of the work of God. Be careful. Now, as we verify counsel and we vet companions and we, and we avoid, counsel, avoid uh, criticism, then we must value certainty. Go to the positive here in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Value the certainty of the word of God. Again, come back to the scripture and value that authority in your life. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. Order my steps in thy word. Let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Oh, the statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Go back to the scripture. A lot of years ago now, I was, uh, I was in Salt Lake City preaching. And the youth pastor at the church I'd gone to college with, and he said, uh, hey, you want to go up to the Mormon temple? He said, they got a tour you can take. And 
I wasn't overly interested in it, but I said, uh, yeah, okay, go. So we went up there and we took the tour. And you can't actually get into the temple, of course. Only Mormons can go in the temple, but they have a visitor center there and they take you through and they, they show you videos and they explain Mormonism. And, and of course, it's, uh, it's pretty powerful stuff and, and, and they show you all these things. And, and uh, the, the guide that was assigned to us was a, about a 60-year-old man. He, was a, he, was a, he owned his own company there in Salt Lake City and a very nice gentleman, very, very kind. And he's taking us through there and just talking to us. He knew we were Baptist preachers, and he thought that was a great challenge. And so we, we sat down to watch this video. And in the video, it said that they, they do not believe in hell. And so we got up from that video, and we were walking to the next room or venue, whatever we were going to see. And, I, I said, and he kept saying, now... We're just like you guys. We believe the Bible. We believe in the family. We, we have a lot to offer you. We, and he kept saying, we believe the Bible. We believe the Bible. So I said, uh, sir, you keep telling us you believe the Bible. He said, oh, yes, sir. We believe the Bible as long as it's interpreted correctly. And I said, well, what do you do with Luke 16? He said, well, what does Luke 16 say? I said, well, it talks about the rich man who's in hell. He said, oh, well, we don't believe that part. Oh. So a little while later, we were getting on an elevator to go up to another floor, and he was talking about how he gave up two days a week from his company to, to do these tours because it was going to earn him a higher place in heaven. And he was telling us how, you know, your works gain you these, these accesses to heaven. And I said, now, so basically, you go to heaven based on your works. Oh, yeah, he said. I said, well, what do you do with Ephesians 2, 8, 9? He said, well, what does Ephesians 2, 8, 9 say? I said, well, it says, for by grace are you saved by faith, and that not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. He said, oh, we don't believe that part. Do you believe that part? I mean, what part don't you believe? We've got to value the certainty of God's word. We don't get to pick and choose what we believe and what we don't. I don't like everything in here, but it's still true whether I like it or not. I don't always want to live everything in this book, but that doesn't matter. It's still true. So value the certainty of God's word. So to be used by God, to be this vessel of honor for revival, we've got to have an unmovable foundation. We've got to, we've got to be careful of an unwise fellowship. And then notice the third aspect is we must have some undeniable fruit. Now, how does that work out? We'll go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's finish where we started. Go back to 2 Timothy 2 and look at verse 21. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified in meat for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. How can we be used by God in revival? Well, there must be a purging. There must be a purging. If a man will purge himself from these, a purging away of that which is contrary to God, a purging away of that which is detrimental to the things of God. 
that hinders the work of God. You see, sanctification, which begins the moment you get saved, literally means that God has set us apart. He's not only pulled us out of the world when he saves us, but he has set us apart unto himself. Now, if all salvation did was get us out of hell, that'd be a great thing. But God didn't save us just to pull us out of sin and out of the world and out of hell. God set us apart. And in order to be used now by God, we've got to purge ourselves from those things that hinder the work of God in our life. We've got to purge. In Ephesians 4, verse 22, that you put off concerning the former uh, conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. How many of you discovered after you got saved there were some things that didn't please God in your life? Yeah. And you didn't even know that when you got saved. But the more you heard the word of God and the more you allowed the Holy Spirit to convict you, he said, that, that's got to go. That, that's, that's hindering me. That, that's not going to allow you to be used by me. And so the Holy Spirit of God begins to purge us. And when we see those areas of our life that need to go, we need to be quick to purge them out. If iniquity be in thine hand, Job said, put it far from thee, and let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacles. But there must not only be a purging, there must be a proving. He says we're to be meat, verse 21, for the master's use. Meat for the master's use. Not meat in the sense of something you eat. But to be used by the master, you've got to meet the standard of the master. Meet for the master's use. Come up to his standard. In other words, there must be a proving. Not by man's standard. Not by the church's expectation. But we must meet the master's standard. Uh, we talked about the tape measure last night. Uh, Amos said, I, I've set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. God has given us a plumb line. This is the standard that we must meet if God is going to use us. Uh, years ago, my wife and I, we, we, we bought a home in, in Wisconsin. And uh, we were in evangelism at the time. And, and we didn't need a place that we could live in all the time. So we bought this old cheese factory that was made, uh, built in 1890. It was basically a barn. And we decided we were going to turn it into a house. So every time we went home, we did more and more work on that house. And it, was, it needed a lot of work. And the uh, first time I painted the outside of the house, it took me 126 hours. Because it was barn lumber, and you had to paint it with a brush to fill in all the cracks. It was quite a job. And we replaced the, the, the front uh, terracing. We, we did so many things in that house. It was amazing. But as we, as we began to develop that house, my wife said, you know, I'd really like to have some wallpaper in the dining room. Well, I had never wallpapered before. I like wallpaper. I, you know, it, was, it was pretty popular at the time. And she said, I, I'd like to have some wallpaper on this one wall. And she picked it out. It's really pretty. It was really nice. And I thought, well, I, you know, I can do this. And so I, I got, you know, the tray and the, the, you know, the water that gets all gluey. And, you know, you got to put the wallpaper in there and soak it. And then you got to pull it out. You got to be quick. You know, you got to cut it right and all that stuff. And so I'm, I'm following all the directions. I'm following what she's telling me because she's done it before, you know. And so so I'm, I got this wallpaper, and I, I lined it up with the top. I start in the middle. 
you don't start at the corner, you start in the middle. So I, I started in the middle, and I, I put it up there at the top of that wall, and I kind of smoothed it out, brought it down a little bit, and then I took a step back, and my eye told me that's crooked. I mean, I could, I, I, I could tell that's crooked. But it was, it was exactly even with the top of the, the ceiling. And I thought, the ceiling's crooked. So I thought, well, I was born at night, but not last night. So I thought I'll start at the bottom and go up. You know. So I, I got the bottom, even with the, with the floor, and I went up. It was still crooked, because the floor was crooked, too. I thought, well, forget this stuff about starting in the middle. I'll go to the, the side wall, you know, this, the corner, and I'll start there. And so I lined it up with the corner. It's still crooked. Every guide I could find was crooked. You know what I needed? A plumb line. And once I got that plumb line after about three days, you know what? It actually looked straight. You know, you can try and try and try. I can try and try to get my life straight with God. But we've got to go back to the Word of God. We've got to go back to the standard. We've got to go back to the, to the, to the tape measure and measure according to his meat for the master's use. And then there must be preparation. Prepared unto every good work. Now don't spurn preparation in your life. We get anxious. We want to be used. We want revival. We want something to happen in our family now. We want something to happen in our church right away. We want to reach our community for Christ. We, we want to do all these things. But don't spurn the preparation. Preparation is very important in serving God. Do you realize that Moses was trained by God for 80 years for 40 years of ministry? Jesus Christ spent 30 years preparing for three years of ministry. The Apostle Paul spent at least 14 years in the desert before he began to be used by God in preaching. Don't spurn the preparation Knowing this, that the trine of your faith being much more precious than that of gold that perisheth, but let that patience have its perfect work. They may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Listen, I believe with all my heart revival's coming. I do. I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe that. But I do believe that there's some preparing that still needs to go on in my life and in churches in order for God to send it. And we want God to just kind of, boom, blow the lid off this thing, you know, and show us revival. And yet God may be doing things in our life. It might be through a trial. It might be through a difficulty. It might be through a blessing. But God is trying to prepare us for that revival. Preparation is not always the enjoyable part, but it is the essential part. So where are we in this week? Well, if we're going to have revival... We have to be silent. We have to submit. We have to search. And tonight, we got to separate. We got to purge. And whatever we find in the standard of God's Word in our life that doesn't match has got to go because it's only going to contaminate the salt. And when the salt is contaminated, it's good for nothing. 
You can have revival meetings. You can have a great choir. You can have a great preacher. You can have a wonderful sermon. You can have the church clean. You can invite everybody in town to come. But God says it's all good for nothing if the salt has lost its savor. I really believe that Paul had that thought in his mind when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, I fear lest by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul thought, boy, I don't want to live one day of my life contaminated and thus be good for nothing. Even though maybe God's used me in the past, God's blessed me somewhere back there, I don't want to get in a place where, where I got contamination and now God has to put me on a shelf and no longer use me for the revival that he intends. So what is it tonight in, in silence? What is it tonight as you submit yourself before God? What is it tonight as you search the scriptures that God says, that needs to go? Get that out of the salt. You're my sodium chloride. Oh, listen, you can make me look good and taste good to a world that's lost its appetite for me. You as salt can create thirst in people's lives for the gospel. You can preserve truth in your life if you'll love me and, and live for me. I need salt. But once the salt is contaminated, it's good for nothing. It'd be rough if Kyle called me good for nothing or I him. But it'd be awful for God to say, John Getz, you're good for nothing. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that we live in a polluted world, a culture all around us that is contaminated with sin and rebellion. And Lord, tonight it's a challenge for each of us to keep ourselves pure. But Lord, it is an essential if we are going to be used in any way, shape, or form to see revival. So God, I don't know what you're talking to these folks about. I know what you talk to me about. And Lord, I pray that we would be transparent with you tonight. We don't have to come to a confessional booth. We don't have to confess our sins to the preacher or to man. We can come boldly into your presence. And you're our mediator. And Lord, I thank you that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us and make us that salt with savor that you can use in revival. Work in our hearts tonight. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, the penis is going to play. Let's stand. And if God is dealing with you, take a moment either at this altar, at your seat, to allow the Spirit of God to purge your life of contamination. If you're here tonight and you say, Brother Getch, I really do struggle with doubts about salvation. And quite frankly, after listening tonight, I, I think I'm more confused than ever. I don't know where the doubts are coming from. 
Listen, I think we can help you unravel that from the scripture if you'll let us. You don't need to leave this place not sure of a foundation. If you're not absolutely certain, you're on your way to heaven. Can I encourage you to meet Pastor Keeley here and just say, Pastor, I, I need some help. I need to get this settled. We're not going to, I'm glad when I got saved. I was a church member when I got saved, but nobody looked down on me. Nobody thought less of me because I didn't have it settled. I'm glad people jumped in and tried to help, and they did. I'm forever grateful. Everyone that knows they're saved is glad they know. And you can rejoice in knowing tonight as well. Pastor. Sure.